Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode, we interview Professor Thomas T. Hart about the Poet Center for Business Analytics and the future of big data in South Dakota. Thomas, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing quite well, Michael, and uh, thank you for inviting me to participate in the Credit Hour podcast. Well, no, we're really excited. Um, you are the first poet professor of business analytics at the USD Beacom School of Business. Um, what is that position? What does that entail? Yeah, well, of course, it's a great honor to to uh, have poet uh, partner with us and, and to be the poet professor for business analytics. Uh, there's really three things that uh, comprise the Center for Business Analytics mission. Uh, the first one is teaching, the second one is research, and the third one is business community outreach. So in teaching, we've been able to bring up, we, we've actually got uh, an undergraduate in operational analytics. We've got a Master of Science in Business Analytics, but then we also have a Business Analytics Specialization for the MBA, and next year we're going to have an Accounting Analytics Specialization for the MPA, the Master of Professional Accountancy. So POET has been central in, uh, in us bringing up these, these uh, new teaching programs. But it's also been important for our research mission because it's allowed us to have more resources so we've been able to have more time and broaden the scope of of our research. So that's been helpful too. And the third component is uh, outreach to the business community. And so we're doing that now through executive education. Uh, We've got faculty and student uh, consulting projects. And then we also have research uh, symposiums. So for example, earlier this year, uh, in in collaboration with computer science and mathematical sciences, uh, we produced the data harnessing symposium. And so we were able to bring world-class researchers to the USD campus to present what they work on. Now, let's take a step back here for a second. When did the Poet Center for Business Analytics get started? So it was in planning for probably a year before we actually announced it. But it was last December when the when the announcement uh, came through and we had a ceremony and everybody from Poet came down to Vermilion and President Abbott came over and uh, uh, the, the provost was there. So everybody uh, showed up for that. And now, you got to tell me here. I'm, obviously, we've had statistics classes forever, right? What is it today that makes analytics, um, data-driven decisions, why is that such a kind of in vogue um, you know, concept for decision-making for um, businesses and industries? Yeah, so statistics was really oriented to small data sets. You didn't have too much data to work with, so you had to be very smart about how you worked with that data. And that has formed the foundation for what we do in analytics, but now we have big data. We have lots and lots of data. Sometimes it's coming really fast, so fast that you, you know it's almost unimaginable. But we also have a lot of variety in the data. So those three components are the accepted definition of big data, and that was coined by Doug Laney in about 2000. So the, if the volume, the variety, or the velocity of the data 
is so great that we can't use traditional techniques to manage it or to distill information from it, then we have to go to newer techniques. And that's really where the world of analytics has come in. Well, so what is, I guess, big data? I mean, you hear that term kind of thrown a lot or that phrase thrown a lot um, or around a lot, I guess I should say. Um, can you give us maybe an example of, of what traditionally would be big data? How does it um, interact with just, you know, consumer behavior, for example? Yeah, so uh, when when we uh, go to the store now, at least if you're like me, and, and let's say you go to Hy-Vee, you get a, a card that uh, has Hy-Vee Perks on it. And I don't know, maybe they call it Perks Plus now or something, but they actually are recording everything that I purchase. And in return for that, I get to go to the gas station and get my gasoline discounted. So that's the, the trade-off there. But they're taking that data and they're analyzing purchasing patterns. And so they're looking at things like the demographics that they would know about me, for example, uh, the age category that I'm in, where I live, maybe how many children I have, how far I commute, all those kinds of things. And they put it together to form a profile. And that profile then informs their choices of what they uh, provide for us in, what, in, way of, in the way of products, but also how they market those products to us. So everything from locations in the store to what we see in their ads is going to be driven by data. Man, that is interesting. I, I'm trying to take a step back and think here. I mean, is there an industry that you know, I'm, hasn't been caught up, uh, I guess, kind of in the world of big data. I mean, I even think of things like sports. I mean, you turn on a, a ESPN you know, program right now and you're going to hear about analytics. I mean, has this, you know, been a tool that has completely revolutionized all, you know, industries and businesses or are there still some holdouts, I guess? Well, there are a few holdouts, but it's becoming more and more pervasive. And, and the holdouts are really the, the people that have kind of stayed back and said, I want to see how this really turns out before I invest money in it, because they see it as a risk, that the investment as a risk. But of course, not doing something is also a risk, right? Because right. you fall behind your competitors. And, and sometimes very small organizations have a hard time seeing the, the value of it. But, but what's been surprising is the number of small organizations that have signed up for some type of analytics. Maybe they have gotten a third party to provide it, or maybe they've just taken one of their employees and had them try to learn a little bit of it or hired a new person to, to do that. But even very small organizations are embracing analytics. Well, I think that's actually... Um pretty interesting. I mean, how, how would a, a small organization, maybe a, a business with only five, six employees, let's say a small business traditional, how would they bring an analytic approach um, you know, to, to their normal co course of business operations? So all businesses collect data. Uh, they, they have to for certain for tax purposes, but typically they also collect data in order to manage their operations. So they, they, they usually have this data, but a lot of times it's just sitting around and, the, and they aren't using it in the way that they can use it. So, for example, um, in uh, Europe right now, in the Netherlands, the railroad system by law must collect data points on every three meters of track. Now, they actually collect data on every 25 centimeters of track. So they have a lot more data than they use. And they've got lots of opportunities to do things with that. So, for example, they can tell when a train goes by on a rail whether that rail is nearing a point of failure. 
And the reason that's important is you've got a 40-year life on a rail. You don't want to replace it too early because it's expensive. But it's even more expensive if you replace it too late because then you've got a derailment and possibly the loss of life is certainly a huge financial problem that comes about as a consequence of that. So what they're doing is moving towards using that data uh, that hadn't been used before. And that's really what people will do. So if you're a small business, you probably have spreadsheets of data where you're collecting things like who are your customers? How frequently do they purchase things from you? What do they buy? But you probably don't take the time to actually analyze that. If you did, you could improve your business operations. So a great example of this is the, the director of marketing at Procter & Gamble famously said, uh, half of what I spend on marketing is a complete waste of, on, on advertising is a complete waste of money. I just don't know which half it is. So what, what they're doing though through analytics is they're learning which half is actually useful and which half is a waste of money. So if you were going to make a, a recommendation, I know this is like an impossible question, right? Because it would totally depend on what the particular business was, what the product they were selling. You know, if, but if I was going to look into developing a more analytical approach to sales or something like that, I mean, are there certain nexus points? Um, your website, right? You're probably gathering a lot of data from your website that you know most businesses can, can traditionally look at and say, hey, at this point, this is where I can gather information and, and make better, more informed decisions um, with the way I sell or, or, or with the way I market my products. I mean, is it, is it mainly a marketing focus? Um, I, I'm curious what you would say to that. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's as narrow as just marketing, but take any business domain and take a domain expert that's actually doing that job and they'll have questions that kind of are rattling around in the back of their mind that they'd really like to answer, but they don't know how to answer it or maybe they would know how to answer it if they just had the time. And so those questions, you know, they, they, they're there, but, but they're unanswered. And what analytics would do, and, and especially in some place that hasn't used it at all, is to answer those ones that are pretty easy to answer. Get the low-hanging fruit. Start small and then grow from there. And, and people that do that, uh, when you get the answer to one question, that typically will generate more questions. And so it builds on itself. But the whole time, the value proposition is that it's improving your bottom line at every stage of development. You know, we've talked about, um, you know, analytics, I think, from the, the business uh, side of it. Obviously, there's the workforce side of it. People are themselves interested um, in analytics, getting more um, education in this field. Um, you spoke a little bit about the master's degree, I think, in business analytics, which is a program that is, I think, just a few months old, less than a year. Am I correct? Um, you know, how has some of these new programs, and I don't know if you can maybe um, give us a little bit of an overview of some of the different options that um, you know, potential students might be able to pursue. Um, what is one of these degrees going to teach them um, that they don't know now, that they can then go out there and, and get a good job um, and be able to contribute you know, for a business? Why, why does that business or you know, um, I should say data analytics degree, what kind of skill is that going to give them that other applicants aren't going have. So what that will enable them to do is to take data and translate that data into actionable insights. It, it allows you to, to discover patterns and make projections that provide you with more information to make your business decisions on than doing it simply by intuition. Now, we don't eliminate intuition, but we enhance uh, we augment, we improve the intuition that, that business decision makers have. 
Yeah, that's really striking to me. And that, it was it was kind of one thing I wanted to get into was I wonder how much pushback you kind of get from um, maybe the old guard who likes to make decisions kind of based on their gut, right, or the person across from the table. Um, what argument would you make to them? And, and maybe you just made it. Um, how can, you know, business analytics assist them in their endeavors, even the old dinosaur that, that wants nothing to do with, with a computer or all the spreadsheets? Yeah, even even people that, that would consider themselves to be, let's say, technologically challenged, uh, even for them, they still have those questions. And so the, the question I would ask them is, how about giving it a try? How about seeing uh, what will happen if you pose some of these questions that you've been thinking about to somebody that has the capacity to take your data and look for the answer in the data? You know, why now? Why, why has it been the last five, 10 years? I mean, have we reached just a technological capabilities, you know, point um, where our technology has caught up with us and allowed us to capture all of this data? Why is it just, and, and maybe, I mean, you've probably seen the evolution of this your entire length of your career, right? Why do you think it's just been within the last maybe five to 10 years? And correct me here if I'm wrong, maybe it's been beyond that, that, that data has really, um, I think, become a dominant player in the way um, you hear about businesses making decisions. Why now, though? Why is it now that we just hear about this? Well, it's, it's certainly true that you reach a point where you have a critical mass, and that allows you to take the next step in how you process things. So, for example, if you remember, if you look back, and it's about 20 years ago now, when uh, Deep Blue, uh, the IBM program that played chess, when it defeated Gary Kasparov. Now, at the time, we thought of that as this huge triumph for artificial intelligence. But now today, when we look back at that, we say, oh, that was just machine learning. We're doing that all the time and everywhere now. And so you have these... Uh, these thresholds that get crossed and then that builds an awareness of the possibilities of what you can do with information technology. And so once people realize that, then they begin to look for solutions. And so you have, it's kind of a, a network effect, right? As more come in, the network grows and then even more come in until you finally reach a point of saturation where you've got uh, the technology has taken things as far as it can go. And we've kind of talked about that. I'm wondering, how many um, programs or offerings are there available through the Beacom School of Business with a specific focus on, on um, business analytics? Yeah, so at the undergraduate level, we have operational analytics, and that combines the world of business analytics with operations management. So you take somebody who's data savvy and you give them that knowledge of the science of how to get things done. and. Actually, in operations, that's where most of the decisions are made in business because it's, it's kind of a pyramid. You start at the bottom with operations. On that, you've got tactical decisions about how you're going to get things done. And then on top of that, you've got strategic decisions about what should be done. What's the direction of our company? What's our mission? And so what we're doing is we're equipping people to come right out of an undergraduate program and step into a role in operations and make data-informed decisions for an organization. So that's at the undergraduate level. And then, of course, at the master's level, we have the, the MBA and the MPA with the specialization. So that's for people that are going to be in business, but then they're going to be data literate in whatever discipline they actually apply their skills. And then the MSBA, the Master of Science in Business Analytics, that's intended to, to produce business literate 
data literate data scientists. So that, those are people that really can have one foot in both worlds. They can bridge that gap and they can realize the ideas of business people. They can answer their questions, uh, but in a way that uses data to get those answers. Yeah, you, I thought, had mentioned as well, um, you know, executive education coursework. Does the um, you know, Poet Center for Business Analytics, is it involved with any of Beacom's efforts with executive education as well? Yes. <clears throat> yes. In fact, we're, we have an ongoing uh, executive education uh, relationship with Poet. And it's not just with analytics, it's broader than that. So it includes things, uh, for example, um, Tyler Custis spent a good part of last summer going around to different Poet sites, talking to them about negotiations. And and the response from Poet was very, very positive. So it was an excellent experience on both sides uh, for that. So we're doing that in in different ways. And then we also have executive education more broadly, uh, which we're we're, uh, doing in Sioux Falls. You know, how important is is it to form these partnerships with business? I mean, when you're teaching business students, you can only learn so much through the models, through a textbook. At at some point, you have to get out there and see real-world decision-makers kind of in action um, and learn from them. What opportunities has this center allowed our students to get out there in the workforce and learn what it means to be, you know, an active, uh, to to be a good employee, to to be part of the operational decision, um, you know, tree that a business, you you know, is relying upon to effectively execute projects? Yeah, and and that you've really uh, identified the essential point here, which is we want our students to have some experience. We want them to have experience in the world that they're going to go into. And that's going to help them in in several ways. Uh, First of all, sometimes they discover that they have selected the wrong discipline. (laughs) And then they can get out at a relatively low cost while they can still change and adapt. But if they are in the right discipline, now they know how the life of a professional actually plays out in that discipline. They can see the day-to-day kinds of activities that people do. And you're right, and there's only so much you can do in an academic setting. That's why experiential learning has become so important, and that's really what we focus on. So, for example, every MSBA student will have a capstone project where they will work with somebody in the business community to solve a business problem. And when they go out, uh, then they've already made contact with somebody in the business community, and a lot of times that manifests itself with a hiring. And so they go to work with the people that they've been uh, paired up with for their project. Yeah, I don't want to shift gears too much here, but while we've got you, I I was noticing some other stuff on your um, biography that we've got online that kind of just jumped out at me. And we've so much focused on, I think, the business analytics component of it, but you have a background in computer science, um, in in analytics, I feel like, in general. And so you've worked on a couple of global health projects um, with Carol South Winter. Um, I I don't know if you'd care to, and if this is not an area you want to go down to, we, we don't have to as well, but just tell us a little bit about what some of these growth global health projects were and how analytics in that field fit into these projects. Yeah, Carol is just a fantastic colleague to work with. And what she does is she leads study abroad programs and they actually go overseas and conduct basic research. So uh, in the most recent one that we worked on, uh, she had taken a uh, cohort of students to Ghana 
and they actually go to uh, the, the Sanford clinics because we've got a relationship with Sanford Health. They go to those clinics and they ask them about their experience in those clinics. And Sanford, as you know, uh, T. Denny Sanford uh, initiated a worldwide clinic planting and they're trying to figure out how they can learn from different parts of the world to make the most effective healthcare clinic possible. And so this is part of that. And so they, the students would actually go there and, and sit down. Of course, you've got to have a translator because there's lots of different languages in Ghana. But then they would ask them questions about their experience in that clinic and, and what was it that uh, they liked and what did, did they not like. And there was really, it was interesting because the thing that really stood out among all the possible variables was quality. Quality was what determined whether or not they were certain to come back and use the clinic or not. And the other things were, well, all nice. And, and probably they all have to be there, right? But, there, but that wasn't the thing that drove them. And so that was, uh, that was interesting, at least to me, because I hadn't done the literature search until we began work on this. But it turns out that that, uh, that is a research finding that's been reproduced elsewhere. So results transcend any language barrier, I guess. <laughs> People want results. Um, you know, another interest that you've had is, is kind of on the art of teaching, um, which I think is, is, I mean, that's why we're here, right? I mean, we're at a, a university and we want to be able to teach students um, to go out there and take the experiences they learn from a, a particular program or their particular experience at USD and be able to go apply it um, in real world settings. We've talked about that a little bit. I'm curious, based on some of your research, what makes an effective teacher? Is, is there a particular, you know, is it a particular variable? Is it how much they care? I, just I, based on your experience and based on your research, what do you think goes into an effective teacher? I, I think the most important characteristic is curiosity. And, and that might seem unusual, but, but you have to be curious about how you can improve your teaching because things are changing. And the world that I learned in is not the world that I teach my students in. And, and in fact, it's almost uh, a completely different world. So for example, what I've discovered is in uh, computer science or in statistics or analytics, you can't stand up in front of the class and lecture. You have to have active learning. Students can't be passive or with technology, they're only going to be with you for maybe five minutes at the most. After that, they're gone. It's just like what you've discovered with the difference between, say, a podcast and, and, a, and a video, right? You don't have a very big window of time uh, of the attention of, of a watcher of a video. And, and that's the same thing we've got. We don't have a big window of time where we have the attention of the students. So we have to have active learning. They have to be doing things. They have to be solving problems. And I think they also have to see how this connects to what they'll be doing which is pretty easy in the world of business, uh, but it can be harder for things that are more theoretical. So for example, theoretical computer science, it's more difficult to show them. But what I could do was I could say every single course I took in computer science, I used it in my career, every one of them, even the ones that were complete theory, I ended up using that. So you might not think it's gonna be useful, but actually it is gonna be useful. You know, what advice would you give a prospective student, maybe they, you know, just know they want to be in business. Maybe they don't even know what that what that actually means, right? But they, they just know they're 
attracted to the idea of being an entrepreneur, what advice would you give them at the start of their, you know, let's say college career that's going to set them up to um, be successful later on in life? Yeah, so I, I would suggest to them that they find something that feels like it could work for them. And keep in mind that your value is going to be based on the kind of service you can deliver to others. That's how we measure things. And so it, it might seem like, uh, you know, it would be really cool to be in finance because you hear really interesting things about finance. You know, they're doing big things and uh, maybe they make a lot of money, but maybe they lose a lot of money, maybe a financial crisis. You think, well, I could come in there and I could be a positive and prevent a financial crisis. But then you get into finance and you discover, you know, really, I think I'd be much better in human resources because I like people. I like to be around people and I'm interested in people. And so then you can shift to a, a different discipline based on that. So find something that feels good. And, and, and if you can find, so th this was on a, a, a a colleague of mine, he, he had just on an eight by 10 sheet of paper on his cubicle. Uh, he said, find a job you love and you'll never have to work another day for the rest of your life. Uh, so a lot of times finding a job you love begins with something that feels like it'll work. And then you build into that because as you gain expertise, you find that you enjoy it more. It's like anything else. It's, it's like learning to play an instrument or becoming a, a talented athlete, right? You have to work at it. But when you do, you find out that you really enjoy that expertise, that ability to solve problems. You know, Thomas, for our last question, we like to get a little philosophical. And I don't know, you kind of gave a great answer to it ju just right there. Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot, I think, a second time, I guess. But at this point, you've kind of lived, I think, an interesting life. You've seen, I think, a total technological revolution, but you were in, in like a position to take advantage of it. I mean, you were studying computers before, um, you, you, I guess the, I don't even know the right way to conceptualize it, before people understood that that was going to be the future maybe of business, of, of data-driven decisions, things of that nature. So you've kind of been, I feel like you had the, the foresight to put yourself so that you were in the right position at the right time. You know, with the changes that you've seen throughout your career, what do you know for sure? Well, we, we certainly know for sure that there will continue to be changes. That's a given. And so I think for anybody looking at this, what you want to do is embrace the idea of being a lifelong learner because you're going to be one whether you want to or not. Uh, things are going to change and you're going to have to adapt. And if you embrace that, you're so much further ahead than if you resist that. And it's natural to resist that. It's That's the normal way people are. I've got things figured out right here. Don't change things because now things are going to be harder. Uh, but if you embrace that, you look at it as an opportunity. Now I get to move further down the road. I actually get to expand the realm of my knowledge and what I can do and how I can be of service to others. So I think that's the, the recommendation I would have based on my experience. Thomas, thank you so much. And thank you for all you do for USD. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode.